1: Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. The Oscars are this Sunday, and the Netflix original Mank leads the way with 10 nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director for David Fincher, and Best Actor for Gary Oldman as Citizen Kane screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz. I caught up with our modern-day Mank, Turner Classic Movies host Ben Mankiewicz, to discuss his grandfather's Hollywood legacy.
0: Jason, thanks for having
1: me. I know you're a DC guy, at least originally. Yeah. Before you, you know, your career blossomed as it has. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But first. Citizen Kane is what all this is based on. Um, it's exalted as the you know greatest movie ever by the American Film Institute. Why is it held in such regard, both in terms of Wells directing symbolism and your grandfather's you know groundbreaking fracturing of the narrative in his script?
0: Well, uh, a couple of reasons. Uh, you know, it was a big deal when it came out in 1941. This was a uh, yeah, a character in Charles Foster Kane who was very clearly modeled on William Randolph Hearst, who was as influential a publisher perhaps as there's ever been in American history Uh, owned hundreds of papers across the country. And, you know, as much as people bemoan the media and the press today, I mean, you know, while there was great journalism, in some ways, better journalism than there is now, papers took strong positions and their stories reflected that. I mean, it was changing slightly in the 1940s, but we had a long history of uh, of, uh, of significantly slanted news A- and great news, great reporters. I mean, the reporting was, was news, you know, look, it was because it was newspapers, right? And not television and television. And I make my living in television and worked in TV news. But TV news has not significantly advanced the cause of journalism, at least over the past 20, 25 years. Um,
1: Howard Beale. So you-
0: That's right. That's right. Uh, um so, you know, when uh, when Kane came out, it was a, a big deal. And when and, and Hearst tried to, uh, you know, stop it and, and threw out his his uh, minions and his uh, people who were responsible to him in the press and who he paid off, tried to stop the movie. It wasn't solely based on Hearst. That's the thing. It was based on a few industrialists, one of them Hearst, but the character in Kane most represented Hearst. So it was a 1941 uh, big deal movie with a tremendous amount of heat behind it and it was this guy Orson Wells who'd come out from, from New York where he was the radio broadcaster and ran the wonderful Mercury Theater it was his first movie and he came out to California at 24 got this unbelievable contract from RKO uh, make two movies and do whatever you want <laughs> you know and, uh, you'll, right you'll, you'll uh, 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 produce write direct and star in these movies and and that drew instant resentment, as you might imagine, from those who were established in Hollywood, not just directors, but everybody. Like, hey, why, is, why does this kid get this deal? He'd done War of the Worlds in 1938, which, you know, scared thousands of Americans. It's often reported as millions, almost certainly not true, uh, into believing that Martians had invaded New Jersey. Um, but it was quite a thing, and, uh, and he had this great theater success. So it was those two things put together. Um, and then Hearst's attempt to stop it. Um, So there was just all this sort of publicity around it that was organic, right? Um, uh, And then it was great, right? And then Wells made a strong campaign to keep it out of theaters first, and then it was great, and then it got nominated for 10 Oscars. But it only won one, almost certainly because of Hearst's campaign, right, to stop the movie. and as you say, it was brilliant. It was innovative. It broke through. Um, you know, Wells had all these deep focus shots. It just didn't look like a movie before. And then the narrative structure of it, which moved back and forth, which Mank does too, the Netflix right. film, David Ventures film. Uh, it broke ground. Uh, you know, Wells had significant help uh, from really talented professionals, my uh a grandfather, Herman Mankiewicz, for the screenplay. Greg Toland on the cinematography who really showed Wells these shots, uh, you know. A, a, as, as addition to many others, notably Robert Wise in, right. in the editing of the picture. So, but the narrative of the story around it became that this is Wells's movie, and it is it is Wells's movie. I mean, the sheer force of producing to get it done, the um, Uh, The the innovative breakthrough directing and this incredible performance, but I mean it's as much a collaborative effort as any movie that was ever made. But Wells was a self promoter too, and a good one, and and I don't even think that's bad, really. But he wanted to live up to the terms of his contract, so it became like this. Oh my God, this kid has made all by himself this movie that no one has ever uh, seen before, and that was uh, that was not the case.
1: That's a bit. And
0: then, uh, sorry, I know it's been a long answer. But then it went away, like so many classic movies do, and there were uh, supporters of it. But then in 1970, 71, Pauline Kael published her piece um, uh, the, about the making of Citizen Kane and Raising Kane. And uh, uh, and then the European filmmakers, those critics, uh, many of whom became directors, Francois Truffaut and uh they developed this keen appreciation for it and it started having this art house revival and then before long you know the Cahiers du cinema which is the uh, noted french magazine and then said it was the best movie ever made um but it took 30 years off <laughs> before people came back to acknowledge that it was or to say that it was the greatest movie ever made sorry for that long answer
1: no are you kidding me i'm eating it up <laughs> um I want to unpack a couple of things you said. You 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 think, You think mentioned it was nominated for what, like almost 10 Oscars, but only one. I
0: think it was 10. 10 it might have been nine.
1: And you said that it was Hearst that basically campaigned so that it wouldn't win all those. Do you think Wells was at least happy that it went to John Ford? Because he said his favorite was John Ford, John Ford, and John Ford were his three favorite directors.
0: <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I think Wells probably knew what was coming. I mean, there's no question he was disappointed that it didn't win Best Picture. He did win Best Director. Um, but, you know, in a sense, it's, you know, I don't know, it's better, like, like, the st- and that's part of the narrative of the making of the movie that there was this movement to stop it. And that somehow, you know, a good picture, How Green Was My Valley wins best picture. It's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. It's as silly as, as, you know, Shakespeare in Love uh, beating Saving Private Ryan. It makes no sense. But that only, that only is now elevated. This uh, Citizen Kane, because it's like, oh my God, and and that's the thing that, that Wells fought these headwinds with help from from RKO and George Schaefer, but but he fought these headwinds. That that's almost the most impressive thing about these movies is his sheer force of will and personality, uh, and drive to get the to get the picture made. Louis B. Mayer offered the production costs and then some to RKO for the movie, and then he was just going to bury. It. Right. Yeah. And Louis B. Mayer is very poorly uh represented well acted but poorly represented uh in in mank.
1: Oh yeah, the movie doesn't do him any favors at all. <laughs> no. But you mentioned no. you mentioned that uh the the kale book which I think is a good way to tee up mank itself is you know that that kale writes Raising Cane which is very I'd say more anti-wells pro-mank in terms of how much involvement Wells she claimed didn't have in it. And then I know Peter Bogdanovich kind of took the alternate stance in the cane mutiny, where he was trying to argue for Wells's involvement. Where do you come down in terms of your historic, you know, understanding of what happened in that? Well,
0: I come down on the, I come down on the truth, which is that my grandfather is by far most responsible for the screenplay. It seems very obvious to me. And then Wells did a tremendous job of condensing it. I'm a, I would, you could argue Wells deserved half the credit for it, but he, he, my grandfather wrote the movie and then Wells and came up with that structure and so you know decency today would have had you leave your name off even a director who who condensed it and sort of put it together in a in a in a new way um but you know if you want to put your name on it fine okay and my grandfather did take ten thousand dollars to keep his name off it um and then realized he'd written the only thing he was proud of and wanted his name on i got no beef with that at all um and, and Wells ought to have uh, responded to that, but he didn't because there was this hype around it. That's what I believe that he had to have done everything. That's the mere fact of paying 10 grand to keep the writer who wrote, who wrote it off. I mean, yeah, you know, my grandfather made a lot of money. He was the highest paid writer in Hollywood then lost it all. He was a gambler, he was a drinker. He was fun to be around. He wasn't a mean drunk. He was a fun drunk, but he was sure. drunk and uh, he sabotaged his own career. Um, and uh, you know, he, he, became proud of this. So, and I think then, you know, I love Peter Bogdanovich and uh, we did our first podcast on, 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 Peter, you know, um, the, the plot thickens. I'm still Peter Bogdanovich. It's the name of the podcast. We're, we're very proud of it. I hope
1: you get the plug in Peter everybody. God. Check it out.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's really good. So, um, uh, and woman named Angela Carone, I want to make sure credit goes around. She produced it. She's the one most responsible for it. I and mean, I did the interview with Peter and I contributed and I, you know, but Angela is most responsible for it. I could take. I could see me taking half credit, but she, her name would go first. Um, you got ten thousand dollars to
1: leave your name off it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I got uh, I got zero dollars. I mean, I got what not pays me. I was I asked. I was like, so the pie is different, you know? And they were like, yeah. No, why don't you just do it? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, uh, but anyway, they were great and supportive. They really were. Um, So I think that what motivated Peter and others, and Peter, I mean, I won't put words in his mouth. He doesn't resist this notion that my grandfather's certainly most responsible for the screenplay and probably, I think not probably, significantly responsible for the screenplay, most significantly. Um, But that what Pauline Kael's piece did was minimize Wells across the board right, made it seem like it wasn't really Wells's movie. And I think that's wrong, right? I mean, it is, if you're going to name one person whose movie it is, it's Orson Welles's movie, that sheer force of will to get it produced, this brilliant directing, um, uh, the condensing of the screenplay, but, and then this unbelievable starring performance playing a guy over a lifetime. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's, uh, so I think they responded to that. Like, are you kidding me? You're diminishing Orson Welles? You don't know anything about movies. That is a filmmaker's complaint that, about Kale. those two who don't, didn't appreciate her work. Many did. That like, hey man, you don't know anything about movies. You do not know. You're sitting here picking on this process that you do not understand. Um, and we're not pretending that it's necessarily some impossible process to grasp, but you don't have it. Um, so I think that Wells was unfairly minimized in general in, by Pauline Kale. But I don't think my grandfather was improperly elevated by Pauline Kale. And of course, both those things can be
1: true. Yeah, you can hold both of those at the same time. Um, that's right. And I, so, and I know that's, that's sort of push and pull factored into the, the script itself. Because so David Fincher's father, Jack Fincher, wrote, I think, an early draft yeah. like long ago, like in the 90s or something, right? Um, and uh, is it true that you know those early drafts were sort of anti-wells as well and then fincher kind of put him back in there a little bit while maintaining what you're saying that it is your grandfather's script
0: yeah i mean it isn't really about mank is not does not is not about who wrote the script right i mean at the end of the movie you're like oh herman michael wrote the script but that it's about a writer right it's sort of representative of uh of Hollywood and all that was right about Hollywood. And and a lot of what was wrong, writers have been diminished in Hollywood, you know, ever since they sort of let the directors guild get that last credit. Um, and, you know, I don't know that the director should have that last credit. It seems like the writer ought to be on that same page. Now the writers, you know, frequently there's five writers on a movie. So, I mean, I get it, you know, but the writers have been diminished uh, over the course of Hollywood and, and you know, I, I think that's insane <laughs> so yeah. uh fincher this brilliantly talented innovative breakthrough director one of the you know top directors working today and i don't think there's any question about that Love it. Uh, he wanted to tell the story of a hollywood writer who you know uh, as fincher says in the piece that i did for cbs sunday morning you know was Constantly, um, you know, at the top of uh, the hill, and then would say, "Oh, look! I'm gonna look at this boulder. What if I push this boulder down the hill, and then I walk down and try to push it up again?" You know, in gravel, uh, as Venture said. So, and as I said, he was a drunk. He was a gambler, um, but he was brilliant and sort of universally recognized as brilliant. And his fall, his self-inflicted fall, was sad for a lot of people to see. Um, But he was this breakthrough writer. I mean, he brought all these great writers out to L.A., you know, the famous telegram he sent to Ben Heck, which is, you know, basically get out here as as soon as you can. There's millions to be made. Everyone else is an idiot. Um, So wouldn't have
1: had or any of Heck's great works without that. So, yeah.
0: Right. And I I left
1: out the last line.
0: Get out here as soon as you can. There's millions to be made. Everyone else is an idiot. Don't let this get around. <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> That's the zinger right there.
0: <laughs> That's right,
1: yeah. Talk about Fincher's decision to shoot it in black and white. It kind of evokes that time. Um, you know, he has the typewriter slug lines of the script appearing. And the way, like you mentioned earlier, the way he sort of structured it like Citizen Kane, how it's sort of a collection of memories. They say you can't define one person's life in just a straight two-hour movie. But is sort of the idea, like like Kane, Fincher tries to do that with this movie, right?
0: yeah it, I think it's really and think it really works. I think it's good. you know the movie basically is set in nineteen forty. My grandfather had broken his leg in a terrible car accident. He was going to drive across the country and not long. He wasn't driving but broke his leg very badly, um which was just an excuse for then him to sit around and drink even more. but uh, Wells and John Houseman, who was a critic by the way, Houseman was a critical factor in getting Kane made in the producing. So I mean, you know Wells had help with everything except the act significant help from really brilliant people. Uh, and Houseman, by the way, you know, said that Houseman thinks he contributed a lot and he well quite likely to have, he was there with my grandfather in Victorville. So my grandfather breaks his leg and Wells and Houseman arranged to take him three hours or so into the desert, uh, from, uh, not really into the desert, but uh, three hours, you know, from Los Angeles in, uh, inland and, uh, uh, and North, I think, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I've been there, I've been to the house, uh, uh where where he wrote Citizen Kane and, and he stayed there for you know basically three months and wrote the screenplay and they kept booze from him and uh and you know and 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 Houseman supervised the writing and, and contributed to it. The movie and Fincher acknowledges this is, is is not really fair to John Houseman. But how if Houseman's role had been depicted accurately, it you know diminishes the story about Herman. So even he was like, yeah Houseman kind of took a bullet on this one. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, so anyway, he breaks his leg, writes the, uh, uh writes the screenplay, uh, writes the screenplay there. And then Fincher does the movie, as you alluded to in, in these flashbacks from, I think, 31, 34 and 37 These part p- bits and pieces of Herman's life as he's this superstar in 31. And, and then in 34 and 37, you can sort of start to see his disillusionment with Hollywood, which was true. He was embarrassed by how he made his living. He, you know, you'd be a theater critic or a journalist um or write plays that was that was a proper way to make a living. He had a very demanding father who disapproved of many things and um you know and disapproved of, of filmmaking though he was very happy with the rewards that filmmaking <laughs> brought him uh, through his kids. You know, he, he liked that life that they were able to uh provide for him. So um and yeah, you know, and the, each scene starts with, you know, exterior, MGM studios. And the date and day, you know, it looks like a looks like a screenplay. Um, yeah. And Fincher finishing his dad's work, you know, puts for me, for me and for Fincher, these, uh, you know, these these sort of uh, uh, loops of uh, family, these family connections uh, on the movie, which is which is nice. And Fincher clearly reworked his dad's uh, screenplay pretty significantly. But he told me that he, he really kept the, the structure of his of his father's work. And you'll notice that David Fincher says "written by Jack Fincher," is not saying "written by Jack Fincher and David Fincher," <laughs> uh, which, w- which would have been the noble thing for Wells to do. But again, at twenty-four, I-, I get it. I understand why he wanted to fulfill that contract. Wanted to be the the boy wonder, the kid who did everything,
1: for sure. And so cinephiles, you know, like us will, watching that, I feel, I felt sort of the same way as, you know, like when you're watching Bad and the Beautiful or something where you're like, oh, that character's that person. Except here, it's their actual names. You you get Louis B. Mayer, you get Irving Thalberg, the death of him, Marion Davies. There's this great scene between them of, you know, please forgive me if it makes it into the movie, please forgive me if it does. Um, But is there anything you learned about old Hollywood through this or maybe you knew it all already, but we're glad to see included?
0: (laughs) Um I you know I think it was so perfectly de- depicted not not that I know exactly I mean even after 17 years at the TCM I, you know what the day to day life was I just feel like he nailed it right you know I mean Louis B Mayer thought it doesn't really matter who the director is I'm overstating it but the you know that okay. this is an MGM production right this is we know how to make movies and then we slot people in Sort of like the way the bond producers thought like it's not that big a deal who we hire for bond whoever we hire for bond we make it into bond you know they were gonna bring George Lazenby back they were like by the way which his movie on her majesty's Secret Service actually quite good and Lazenby, he he goofed that up um uh, yeah and uh, you know Connery most people I think think it's the best bond most people were around then I think there there's merits to all of them and including certainly the uh, Daniel Craig the, the most recent one I like Roger Moore. Um <laughs> uh and, and you know Pierce Brosnan and Timothy Dalton like they're all okay. They're yeah. they're better than okay. I think they were many of them were good. The stories weren't always. Anyway, we're not talking about that. So yeah. the um <laughs> so yeah, I think he got classic Hollywood, you know, and he got Louis B. Mayer's power um which was, you know, nearly absolute. Um and Thalberg's sort of uh, brilliance, right? He's the head of production uh, at MGM. And, you know, and the sort of there was a camaraderie among writers, certainly, you know, and uh, I think they captured that, the importance of the writer. And you can even see the importance of the writer diminish um, over the course of the movie as my grandfather sort of, again, becomes humiliated um, by what he does and and self-sabotages sort of uh, tragically. And and that's what he wanted to portray, I think, Fincher, this sort of tragic figure and through the screenwriter. and, And Fincher has... Just this you know uh, 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 well of uh, support uh, for screenwriting right for for that that part of the process and he thought that it was you know really appealing to tell a classic Hollywood story through the through a really interesting character, uh, a great screenwriter who hated that he was great at this, this yeah. you know popcorn frivolousness. He was wrong. He should have been enormously proud, uh, <laughs> but he wasn't.
1: A fun role for Gary Oldman for sure, man. He can no, every, yeah, he just like, best, he can play Winston Churchill and then do this, and it's just I love watching him transform from film to film. It's uh, incredible.
0: Right every every real quick, everybody was so good here. You know. Uh, uh, Amanda Seyfried as Marion Davies, just you know, I mean, she's a good actress. She just seemed to elevate. She told me in an interview that that David Fincher has this way of making you feel like you've been lazy uh, in everything else you've made, like because he's so intense. And in I mean, she meant it as a compliment. It is that he brings this thing out where you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I coasted uh, through these uh, uh, other w- roles, and uh, you know, and then uh, uh, not just Amanda Seyfried, but you know, Lily Collins as my grandfather's secretary. Uh, Rita Alexander, who, by the way, you know, is my father, who was a, 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 you know, very proud of his dad's work, but uh, he would always quote Rita when asked, you know, how much of the screenplay uh, did Wells write, <laughs> and she would say, not one word. <laughs> so, <laughs> Love it. Uh, and she was she was with Herman the entire time there up in Victorville, taking care of him because he was that leg was so badly broken he was in bed the entire time unless they put him in a wheelchair and pushed him out. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And what I loved about it, too, is it's not as there's so much about, you know, old Hollywood and, of course, your grandfather just as a man. But there's it's about so much more. There's there's the whole political backdrop, too, with the race for governor of California with Upton Sinclair versus uh, Frank Miriam. Um, talk about how this movie might land politically in terms of trumping up fears of socialism in the movie. There's there's a guy cutting newsreels trying to play up those fears. It's very timely in that way.
0: I think it is uh, certainly politically uh, timely. I don't know if timely is the right word. It's politically relevant. You know, we have had a, a long and rich history that uh, uh, that Donald Trump uh, was not the first to uh, attempt to exploit and his sort of you know sycophants in the in the media that that whoever's running against the conservative is bringing socialism to America. Nonsense. It's dishonest. Um. Uh, but there was happening in nineteen thirty four, and you know, and and. Uh, sort of the corporate world, the powerful establishment of which much of it is is political, you know, has uh, tried to maintain the status quo that there's this sort of fear of economic failure if we give people health care. And you see that uh, in the movie. I mean, Upton Sinclair was much more of a socialist than anyone who has run for president in our time, including Bernie Sanders, who may in his heart be a socialist, but, you know, he's running as a democratic socialist. And You know, I don't know how anybody can see, you know, look, man, uh, you know, I got its free market. We want to encourage a free market. I'm a capitalist, you know, Um, but I don't know that, you know, we need a split of, you know, we're 1% of the population. (laughs) That's 99% of the wealth. It's a problem. And capitalism works if it's regulated. Really, that's an argument over how much to regulate it. Everybody wants everybody except libertarians want to regulate it. So anyway, I, I think the movie captures that nicely that that was happening. Uh, in the 1930s, although that particular Upton Sinclair story isn't really true um, about in, in relation to, you know, Mayor and and my grandfather. But it, it, you know, when you tell a story like this, you find a thing that can tell you the truth, even though that event might not be true. And I think Fincher very clearly uh, told the truth about what was happening in, in, in Hollywood and the kind of thing that my grandfather uh, uh, would have taken a, a, a stand against.
1: Her. For sure. Remind, our, I mean, on the subject of politics, remind our listeners your involvement, who your father was. He was very involved in politics here.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I think my father's the smartest man, who and I don't think it's close. Um, <laughs> but my father was the smartest. I mean, I look, a lot of kids say their fathers were grady. I mean, there's hardly anyone who doesn't think my father was the smartest guy in the room, in whatever room they were in. Uh, and he was, you know, kind and warm and funny. And basically thought that too, except my mom. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, she thought that for a while though. Uh, and so uh, he didn't want to, you know, he felt the same uh, thing that his father felt that Hollywood was not an appropriate way to make a living, right? It's not a noble way to make a living. Now, my dad, he was an entertainment lawyer for a bit, had some fun clients, Steve McQueen, and James Mason. But when uh, Jack Kennedy was elected, he thought, no, this is what you're supposed to do. There's a call to action, right, to make it better. And he joined the Peace Corps, became Latin American director of the Peace Corps. That's where he met Bobby Kennedy and became Bobby Kennedy's press secretary and uh, announced his death to the country. And uh, people who were alive then are, are, remember that. It's such a terrible day. And uh, but and as, again, it was you know, Jack Kennedy's call to action that got him in the Peace Corps. And then he ran George McGovern's campaign He was president of National Public Radio for for five years, and then finally, when he was sixty, he started. You know, he made a little money. Um, uh, we, we were asked by a reporter, my brother and I, um, "What's the biggest misconception um, of the Mankiewicz family?" and and uh, my brother gave it very quick that we're rich, right? and that was. Uh, um, uh, uh, there's a side of it that is, but the. Uh, uh, Tragically, not our side. We do just fine. Not not knocking it, but I like I like that answer. Um, so uh, my dad was a big deal in in politics in, in D.C. I mean, we'd go to the supermarket together every Saturday, and inevitably people would come up to him, and I was you know eight nine ten years old, and blown away. I'd be like, you don't know who that person is, and they just talk to you, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, so, uh, my dad was a very influential guy for a long time in, uh, in democratic politics and really had a keen understanding of, uh, politics. He, he died in 2014. These last four years would have been tough because he was always incredibly optimistic, tons of Republican friends about the future uh, of the country, that it was always better. Um, and I, I think he would have, a, he would have had a very tough time, uh, in these last four years. I wish he were here, but, uh. I'm grateful in a sense. So is my brother Josh, a correspondent corresponded Dateline NBC. That uh, that he, he wasn't around for this.
1: Right. Well, before we run, uh, remind our listeners of of your journey. You know, didn't you, didn't you start out George Michael's sports machine? So a little Brenner action. I did. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I was so the first year I worked uh, first you know summer after my I guess sophomore year I worked at George Michael Sports Machine uh, with a friend of mine Jim Altman is the reporter now in Hartford Connecticut with like I don't know thirty eight Emmys, and uh, uh, also from DC and then we came back the next year and worked for uh, Glenn Brenner who was you know uh, really the sort of one of the finest broadcasters I, I've ever seen. Um, I just I'm not trying to badmouth George but George was a little tougher and. Uh, and could be a, a difficult guy and sort of threatening. It's our first day there as interns, he talked about what stays in the sports room. You stay, he can't, I can't, we can't share it with the newsroom, we can't share it with anybody. Somebody he told the kid about a previous intern, uh, wrote a story about working here with the American University paper. And you know, a kid's never going to work in this business again. Okay. So the next summer, uh, Jimmy and I go to work for Glenn Brenner, and we tell Brenner that story. <laughs> Brenner the producers, they just start laughing. And let me tell you this. Uh, you start telling people around town about George. I guarantee you'll work in this business for the next 50 years. Um, <laughs> uh, he goes, I'll personally see to it that you always have a job. Uh, and Brenner was an incredibly funny. His, you know, death and his sudden death was really, I, you know, it shook me at a, at a young age. Uh, real quick, I just remember Brenner during a snowstorm and they're all on the set and, you know, DC and snow is still like, the apocalypse uh and uh uh doug hill was doing weather then at the oh, yeah. at channel nine and, and brenner just in he just gets up and so he can't even see his head and he comes around doug hill and, and he starts rubbing his shoulders on the air and he's like and he leans down he's like whispering in his ear he's like come on we're all counting on you, you can do it this is going to be good you're the man you're the man <laughs> um uh you know he was great uh, all those guys were great max robinson gordon peterson maureen bunyan J.C. Hayward, um, you know Mike Buchanan, uh, so I, my brother was a television reporter. I became a television reporter, um, and uh, you know liked the camaraderie and liked getting things done quickly and the pressure of a deadline. But you know we were doing silly stories, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to continue. I wanted to cover politics if I was going to work in TV, and that just wasn't going to happen. We didn't have a political reporter. We covered political stories when they came up. And, Uh, So I came out here, uh, I had a great job in Miami at this unique TV station that uh, sort of let you have an opinion and you had to back it up. We got to call Rudy Giuliani, uh, can I say prick? Because that's what we called him on the air. And we got to take a side in the Elian Gonzalez uh, story that, that, you know, amazing uh, and tragic story about the Cuban kid who came over and lost his mother but survived and his father wanted him back in Cuba. His Cuban American family wanted to keep him. And it was great to be able to cover those stories in the manner that we did cover the 2000 election. And then I just got out of the business after that when that station went off the air. It didn't seem like that kind of thing was ever going to happen again. I came out to LA. I auditioned for 138 jobs. That number is barely exaggerated. <laughs> uh, and then I landed the best one that I was up for at the at TCM in the, in 2000 summer 2003. I started in the fall, and it's been a great 17 years. I hope there's a hope there's many more.
1: You've interviewed everyone under the sun there um, and not to mention colleagues, rest in peace, Robert Osborne, like you've, you've been around some legends. I hate when everyone asks me, who was your favorite interview? But um, is there is there anyone that, any of those stars or anything that you got to sit down with that was like ultimate, ultimate bucket list for you? Um, I
0: don't think of it as, as bucket list. I mean, Bruce Springsteen was amazing for me because I'm a huge, long-time Springsteen fan. You know, I know other people have seen him more, but I've probably seen him 40 times. It matters to me, he was great. I, I never wanted to meet him if I didn't have something to talk about And So we were able to talk about movies. We introduced a couple of movies, including uh, uh, John Ford. uh, The Searchers was one of them. And uh, uh, Mel Brooks has been a blast every time we got to know Mel a little bit. Peter Bogdanovich tells these great stories. You know, uh, Tarantino was uh, a challenge, not because he was difficult, but because it was so interesting. And I was sort of constantly afraid that he was going to expose me. Um, (laughs) I asked him at one point, uh, because my favorite Tarantino film was Jackie Brown. I said, well, what do you say to Tarantino fan who says that Jackie Brown is the is their favorite Tarantino movie, and uh, and he goes well. I would say to them they're not really a Tarantino
1: fan. <laughs> 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 Uh, Well, thanks for taking the time to join us. And I love that your your grandfather's finally, you know, getting the credit. I know, although you didn't, you didn't really get to know, was he, he passed away before you were born? Oh, long, long
0: before, 1953. So it's really nice. I mean, now my image, you know, a little bit, it used to be John Malkovich from uh, RKO 281 in the HBO movie. And, uh, but now I think of my grandfather. I think it feels like Gary Oldman just captured him, uh uh captured and perfectly so it was really nice it was moving first the movie's called mank it's insane they must say the word mank 85 times in the movie and uh you know just about everybody in our family has at one time or another been called it some almost exclusively so it was just crazy i mean i got emotional when the title card came up i'm like i I can't believe we are making a movie about my grandfather. this is nuts you know it was a screenwriter that most people have never heard of you know overwhelmingly most people have never heard of so uh uh, it was nice and it's great to talk to you because you know there was there. you know if you'd asked me to name call letters from growing up in DC I just would have said WTOP. that's you know what you listen to for news you know when I was a kid throughout forever you know and uh, and great call letters too so you know it's fun to be I know there's been a lot of changes in DC media but it's still fun to be talking to WTOP.
1: oh yeah well we appreciate it and I love at the end you know that mank gets to hold the oscar and sort of get the final word right there before the credits do you know what happened to that oscar like my good friend and mentor arch campbell always th- you know arch uh of course yeah he, he tells the he tells this story that he was at a party and someone called him into a side room and said there was the oscar to citizen kane there he loves that story but where is it today do you know
0: well that was my father's uh, apartment uh, in uh, adams morgan just uh, connecticut and columbia road so And uh, yeah, dad had the Oscar. It was willed to him. Um, The screenplay was uh, willed to both my grandfather and his brother and the sled to my uncle. So they sort of split things up, one of the sleds. It wasn't used in the movie, but Ben Hecht gave it to my grandfather at the rap party. That's how the story goes.
1: The actual Rosebud. Um, one of Quite the of ones many, that yeah.
0: apparently wasn't used, but it was still, you know, it still says Rosebud and it's still from from Citizen Kane. So, really cool. um, and then uh, anyway, the long story short, my dad's a very, was always a very generous guy. Uh, he, he was not sentimental, probably in a good way. And uh, anyway, they sold the Oscar. They sold the screenplay first because uh, somebody in the family needed money. And then they sold the Oscar because somebody in the family needed money. And even though it was my dad's, he gave a cut of that uh, out. And, you know, it, it's just what my dad would have done. And uh, amazingly, the screenplay went for my grandfather's notes, went for more than the Oscar. I think if they'd held on to the Oscar, it'd be worth a lot of money. Now But they sold it at auction. And somebody bought it and got a good deal, got a good <laughs> deal on it. But it cost a fair amount of money to insure. So they had taken it off the shelf where Arch saw it uh and had uh put it in a safe deposit box uh, you know and my father thought excuse me well if you're gonna put it in a safe deposit box what's the point like i right. he didn't need to look at it he was like he knows his dad wrote it he knows yeah. his dad won an oscar you know i and, and if somebody wants to pay an exorbitant amount of money for it so if my dad could help somebody he he, he uh, uh he would have done it my, like herman like his father which you'll see in bank there was a a great generosity and my story herman is somebody needed two thousand dollars you give them three thousand because he'd be like well you need the two thousand to sort out your problem and then you have the other thousand to help get back on your feet (laughs) help start making money again so he didn't value money and uh my dad uh, valued money of course the more but he he shared that uh, generous spirit that his dad had
1: yeah, even getting some people out of Nazi Germany. I love that scene in the movie, too. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah.
0: true. I don't know if he got out as many as the movie portrays, but he did. He was, and quietly.
1: Well, thanks so much. This was a great talking with you. Um, again, everyone, it's David Fincher's Bank. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Uh, thanks for having me.
1: Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.